0: Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mormon, chapter seven. In this nine chapter book of Mormon, Mormon chapter 7 is the final chapter that is written by Mormon himself. His son Moroni will write Mormon chapters 8 and 9, and of course we'll explore the reason for that when we come to those chapters. Well, we know when we begin Mormon chapter 7 that the Nephite story is already over. We read of their downfall in the previous chapter in very graphic terms, and we read Mormon's Lament. As this chapter opens, then, we'll find Mormon really doing the same thing that he did at the end of Mormon chapter 3, and also at the end, or we could even say for the bulk of Mormon chapter 5, where after finishing with a storytelling narrative, he turns and addresses future readers directly. Uh, so he most certainly does that in the beginning of Mormon chapter 7, uh, saying, I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared. So Mormon has lost his own people, but in a gesture of hope, he looks forward to future readers who might be convinced of the truthfulness of his words. This gesture is also in keeping with a desire expressed by other prophets throughout the Book of Mormon narrative. Most notably, perhaps, was Enos, after he prayed for forgiveness for his own sins, and he seems to have received something like a commission as a prophet, he looked forward to the day when the record could come forth to the posterity of the Lamanites. So Mormon is doing something similar here, I think, as he turns from the storytelling narrative and addresses future readers. As he's just told us in his lament, his sorrows cannot bring the return of these Nephites. So what can he do? Well, he can do this. He can turn his heart toward future readers, just as other prophets have done. He can provide them with specific counsel, And he can yet one more time, and one final time, as we hear from Mormon in this book, uh, testify of the power and accessibility, if we will but come to him, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. In addition to that message, which of course we could characterize as the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is encapsulated so beautifully in verse 8 of this chapter with the phrase, lay hold upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, A secondary message might shine through for us as well, and this is a message actually that Moroni will make abundantly clear in the next chapter, when he will tell us that Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me and I know your doings. That we, the saints of the latter days, have been seen in this final dispensation by prophets in previous dispensations. They have prayed over us and worried over us. They have desired that we would do our part to bring their carefully written record forward so that we might help in the fulfilling of the covenant. And what covenant is that? Well, it's the covenant that Jehovah made with Israel. And so today, in this way, we can participate in the gathering of Israel. And in so doing, we not only have the support of our current living prophet, who is such an advocate and a champion for this cause, but we have the support of ancient prophets such as Mormon, who have gone before us and who have prayed over us, and who want us to play our part during this critical and exciting time of the gathering of Israel in the last days. Well, before our reading of the text, let's spend just a few minutes looking at the structure of this chapter, of Mormon chapter 7. It has 10 verses, and it has a very unique structure. I hope I'm right in saying this, but it seems like it's a chiastic structure we can see repeated phrases, and we can see that it ends in much the same way as as the way in which it begins, Uh, although the the, the ending expressions are more expanded than the beginning expressions, and the center of the chiasmus is uh, Mormon's plea for the Lamanites to lay down their weapons of war, these same people that have just destroyed his own people. So in that sense, it fits in quite uh, poetically with the lament that he just uttered at the end of the previous chapter. So we'll look at this structure. In verse one, Mormon will speak then to the remnant of this people who are spared, as he puts it. And what follows then are five statements that begin with the phrase, know ye, know ye. Uh, And these five statements, again, seem to have kind of a chiastic form. This is because in verses two and three, we find the first know ye statements. Uh, The first one is in verse two and says, know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. Then in verse 3, know ye that you must come unto repentance or you cannot be saved. Then the third statement is found in verse 4, where uh, Mormon says, know ye that you must lay down your weapons of war. Again, he's speaking to this remnant. Then know ye statements, if we want to say it that way, uh, statements 4 and 5 seem to be an expanded restatement of know ye statements 1 and 2 except in reverse order, which would make this a chiasmus. So verses five through nine contain this know ye statement, that you must come to the knowledge of your fathers and repent of your sins and iniquities. And then Mormon will expand upon that. So again, this seems to be an expanded version and a mirror image in that chiastic or poetic sense of what he says in verse three. Then he'll do the same thing in the final verse, in verse 10, saying, Know ye that ye are a remnant of the seed of Jacob, which seems to be an expanded restatement of his opening know ye statement in verse 2, which says, Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. Adding to this final statement, and this being Mormon's final statement of the entire book of Mormon, Mormon also offers a final invitation to be numbered among covenant Israel. This invitation, of course, is extended to all, not just the seed of the Lamanites. And this invitation to join covenant Israel is couched in very familiar language. It's the language really of the doctrine of Christ. Mormon talks about being baptized first with water, then with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Then he tells us that if from this point forward we follow the example of our Savior, then it will be well with us in our day of judgment. So those are Mormon's final words in his self-titled book, The Book of Mormon, will be lucky enough to hear from him again in the form of epistles that he sent to Moroni in Moroni chapters 7, 8, and 9 as well. Well, with that, let's return to verse 1 for a reading. Let's remember again, as we come into verse 1, that we've just finished Mormon's lament. His storytelling narrative has ended. The demise of the Nephite nation and civilization is complete. It all happened in the previous chapter at the land of Cumorah. And Mormon provided us with his incredibly sad and poignant lament, saying that my sorrows cannot bring their return. So what is it then that he will do in this chapter? Well, he will speak to those of Lehi's family that still will exist upon the earth when his record comes forward again in the hope that his record can help this situation and facilitate the ultimate fulfilling of the covenant and the gathering of Israel. First one, and now behold I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared if it so be that god may give unto them my words that they may know of the things of their fathers yea i speak unto you ye remnant of the house of israel and these are the words which i speak so this verse reads very much like a preface and if i'm right i think it's the preface to a chiastic poem so again the end of this preface in verse one says and these are the words which i speak and there's a colon after the word "speak." So now here is what follows. Verse 2 says, Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. So there it is, the first of five know ye statements. And again, they have this chiastic symmetry. So the first statement, Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. The corresponding piece of this will come at the very final verse when he says, Know ye that ye are of the house of Jacob. Now, despite the somewhat narrow scope that Mormon circumscribes at the beginning of this chapter in this preface by saying that he's writing to the remnant of this people who are spared, we can most certainly apply what he's saying here more broadly to the house of Israel. That would include any that are a remnant of Jacob, but perhaps most importantly, it would also include all prospective members of the house of covenant Israel. That's anyone, black, white, bond-free, male, female, all are alike unto God, and all have the same prospect uh, that lays before them of joining covenant Israel. It's available to all. Returning back, however, specifically to the Lamanites, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, and wondering how it is then that they can be saved, uh, Thomas R. has written this, Mormon pleads to the remnant of the Lamanites in the latter days to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, And be baptized in the name of Jesus and lay hold upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That beautiful phrase that we'll find in verse 8. The Lord in modern day revelation explained the doctrine just as Mormon had. He said in Doctrine and Covenants section 3 verse 20 that the Lamanites might come to the knowledge of their fathers and that they might know the promises of the Lord and that they may believe the gospel and rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ and be glorified through faith on his name and that through their repentance they might be saved. So that's Mormon's first know ye statement in verse two. Now verse three has the second. Know ye that ye must come unto repentance or ye cannot be saved. Now we know, and this is often so true in the New Testament, that when this expression repent is is being used and when it's associated with being saved, we know that uh, it's representative of all of the covenants and ordinances that are implied in the doctrine of Christ. That seems to be what's happening here, as Mormon very succinctly describes the gospel plan in one word, which is, a, which is repentance. So when he repeats this concept chiastically, he will expand upon it a great deal later in the chapter. So I think this can show us that if there is any key word or key term that should represent the entire um, good news of the gospel, it is the word repent. Elder Boyd K. Packer has written, The Gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. Come now, says Isaiah, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is, Isaiah continued, if ye be willing and obedient. Even that grace of God promised in the scriptures comes only after all we can do. So it seems to be that Elder Packer is saying there that those wonderful promises hinge on the door of repentance. Or perhaps we could say that that door of wholeness and grace and light and restitution, uh, everything that's encapsulated and embodied in the atonement of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hinges on on the actuating gesture of repentance. Now, uh, as we come to verse 4, here is Mormon's third know-ye statement, which seems to sit at the center of the chiasmus, and which, of course, is in keeping with what has just taken place, the Lamanites just having destroyed the Nephites in total. So with this in mind, verse 4 says, Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war, and delight no more in the shedding of blood, and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. Mormon couldn't stop the destruction that he just observed and lamented over in chapter 6, but perhaps he can still relay this message in as forcible way as possible to future Lamanite readers. President Spencer W. Kimball once wrote in his work The False Gods We Worship, We are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord, When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend on them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, perverting the Savior's teaching that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven." We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is the special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. And President uh, Kimball provides very interesting references there. This he is able to do, for as he said at the time of his betrayal, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Of course, that's what he said to Peter we can imagine what fearsome soldiers they would be. King Jehoshaphat and his people were delivered by such a troop, as we read in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And when Elisha's life was threatened, he comforted his servant by saying, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The Lord then opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. That's out of Second Kings chapter 6. Enoch, too, was a man of great faith, who would not be distracted from his duties by the enemy. And so great was the faith of Enoch, that he led the people of God, and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness. And all nations feared greatly, so powerful was the word of Enoch. That comes out of Moses chapter 7, verse 13. What are we to fear when the Lord is with us, says President Kimball? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? Our assignment is affirmative, to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies, that they might no longer be our enemies. We must leave off the worship of modern-day idols and a reliance on the arm of flesh, for the Lord has said to the world in our day, I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. Well, there's some wonderful insight coming here from President Kimball. As we think about the way that the church is moving about the earth today, that is the way that the Lord prefers to go on the offense, Uh, not militarily. It's, of course, Mormon that utterly refused to go among his people because of their choice to go on the offense militarily. President Kimball here is making it clear that that is not the Lord's preferred way. Now, does this run counter to Captain Moroni's operating style um, or, for that matter, Mormons' operating style as military leaders? It it does not. Um, Captain Moroni was still beset with the realities that surrounded him, uh, and he handled those in a very compelling way uh, that always made it possible for him to continue to qualify for the Lord's grace and help in his military campaigns, they were always defensive in nature, and he was always providing an out for anyone that would repent, and was always providing for the possibility of the transformation of his enemies. That was always his plan A, instead of simply destroying them. In this way, he was always, um, always capitalizing on the Lord's way in his military efforts, as opposed to going towards the arm of the flesh, as President Kimball is saying here. Now, as we come to verse 5, here is an expanded version of the second know-ye statement, if we consider that know-ye statement as repentance, as being a a microcosm of what he's about to say here. So, he's going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the next five verses, verses 5 through 9. Know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers, and repent of all your sins and iniquities, and believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that he was slain by the Jews. And by the power of the Father he hath risen again, whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave, and also in him is the sting of death swallowed up. Now Mormon will go on to very eloquently describe the whole program of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please lay down your weapons of war, he says in verse 4, and now please embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. This statement by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland comes out of his book, Christ in the New Covenant. We actually read it in the previous chapter, but it fits so well here as well. He says, "...in a soliloquy of death, Mormon reached across time and space to all, especially to that remnant of the house of Israel, who would one day read his majestic record." So the soliloquy of death here that Elder Holland is referring to is is Mormon's lament at the end of the previous chapter. "...those of another time and place must learn what those lying before him had forgotten." So just imagine that. Mormon has those who are lying before him on the battlefield. Uh, He now can speak no longer to them because they're gone. His sorrows cannot bring their return. But he can speak to future readers. So that's what Elder Holland is saying. Those of another time and place must learn what those lying before him had forgotten. That all must believe in Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God that following his crucifixion in Jerusalem, he had by the power of the Father risen again, whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave, and also in him is the sting of death swallowed up. So that is the doctrine that Mormon will continue to explain as he moves into verse 6. He says, And he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, whereby man must be raised to stand before his judgment seat. Now there's the return of that theme that the Savior introduced in 3 Nephi chapter 27, which we might call the inevitability of judgment, the inevitability of that time when we will all stand before him. Alma really spoke of this to his son Corianton in terms of restoration. And Elder Dallin H. Oaks once taught the principle of restoration also means that persons who are not righteous in mortal life will not rise up righteous in the resurrection. Moreover, unless our mortal sins have been cleansed and blotted out by repentance and forgiveness, We will be resurrected with a bright recollection and a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness. The seriousness of that reality is emphasized by the many scriptures, suggesting that the resurrection is followed immediately by the final judgment. Verse 7, as Mormon continues to lay out the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And he hath brought to pass the redemption of the world, whereby he that is found guiltless before him at the judgment day hath it given unto him to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom. So Mormon is telling us that despite this inevitability and despite our uncleanness, our inherent uncleanness because of the fall of Adam and our individual tendency towards sin, it still is possible at that inevitable day for it to be a wonderful thing. So it can be that some who stand before him, uh, any who will actually, who stand before him at judgment day, will hath it given unto them to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom. Then as he goes on in verse seven, to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above unto the Father, and unto the Son, and unto the Holy Ghost, which are one God, in a state of happiness, which hath no end. Now that's a really beautiful verse. The concept that Mormon refers to there as uh, singing ceaselessly with uh, choirs above unto the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is uh, quite a beautiful image, and it's something that John elucidates upon. You can really see this in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You can get a sense for what this might look like as he sees such a thing in vision. And again, as Mormon says, this is a state of happiness which hath no end. That's really thought-provoking to us as mortals, I think, because today, for us, there's such an ebb and flow with happiness. While President Nelson has taught that joy can be independent of circumstance, uh, happiness might be defined in a slightly different way and does tend, it seems, to rise and fall with our circumstances. Mortality is a challenge, but this is a state of happiness which hath no end. Ogden and Skinner have written, Chapter 7 contains the last words that Mormon engraved on the plates, and they are words of testimony concerning Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he rose again and conquered death and that he will meet us all at his judgment seat. He invited the survivors, the Lamanites and their posterity, to lay down their weapons of war to seek peace and the Prince of Peace. He provides redemption for the world and the opportunity to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above unto the Father, and unto the Son, and unto the Holy Ghost, in a state of happiness which hath no end. This happiness is undoubtedly God's state. He lives in a state of never-ending happiness. Coming back to Alma's teachings to his son Corianton, this is antithetical to wickedness when he said wickedness never was happiness in Alma, chapter 41, verse 10. Elder Jack Goslin once wrote, The Book of Mormon speaks of men that are in a carnal state, and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. If we are not pure, we would be miserable in the presence of God and Christ, who are by their very nature happy and joyful and cannot look upon sin with any allowance. Elder Gosselin's tie in with happiness and this very uh, kind of prohibitive sort of Old Testament statement about no unclean clean thing entering the presence of God shows us that there is a connection between these two concepts, uh, between purity and light and truth and happiness. And I think we could add glory and fullness. So, this is a very desirable state. And that's the picture that Mormon is painting for us here. And so then he circles back around to this same know-ye piece of advice that he gave at the beginning of the chapter when he told future readers to repent. And he says in verse 8, Therefore, repent. So it's repentance that facilitates these wonderful things, this happiness which hath no end. And be baptized in the name of Jesus and lay hold upon the gospel of Christ, so here Mormon is anchoring this concept of repentance, which is a, a notion, uh, this, this uh, idea of turning to the Lord that can be seen throughout Scripture and is universally accepted by all creeds and religions, this concept of repenting and changing. But then he anchors it to priesthood authority and to specific covenants with the Lord. This is the missing piece, of course. It's the piece that's found only in his true church, the one that rests upon the foundation of his gospel as he explained in 3rd Nephi, chapter 27. So here he is expanding on the idea of repenting and anchoring it again to these ordinances and covenants. So repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and lay hold upon the gospel of Christ, which shall be set before you. So the gospel of Christ is not only a concept that's tied to his atonement, but we link ourselves to him through covenant, through proper authority. That's the way in which it is set before us. Not only in this record, Mormon continues, but also in the record which shall come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you. So what are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about the gospel of Christ, which shall be set before you in holy writ, not only in this record that will come to you that I have compiled, says Mormon, but also a companion record. In this case, the original, as as we conceive of it, Testament of Jesus Christ, the Old and New Testaments, which will come from the Gentiles, which they will procure from the Jews, and then you, you future readers, will procure this from the Gentiles. Ogden and Skinner have written, the Bible and the Book of Mormon testify of each other. Whoever believes the Bible should believe the Book of Mormon. And we can think of Nephi's words here, of course, in 2 Nephi chapter 29, President Brigham Young testified, No man can say that this book, laying his hands on the Bible, is true, and at the same time say that the Book of Mormon is untrue. There is not that person on the face of the earth who has had the privilege of learning the gospel of Jesus Christ from these two books that can say one is true and the other is false. No Latter-day Saint, no man or woman, can say the Book of Mormon is true and at the same time say that the Bible is untrue. If one be true, both are. Mormon continues with this idea in verse nine, saying, "For behold, this, meaning this record which will come to you that uh, comes through me, this book of Mormon, is written for the intent that ye may believe that. That being the record brought by the Gentiles from the Jews to the remnant, the Bible. And if ye believe that, you will, th- will believe that. If you will believe that, you will believe this also. And if you believe this, you will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them." So in this way, the record is a critical part of the fulfilling of the covenant because it inclines modern readers towards their fathers, fulfilling in that sense Malachi's prophecy, although Malachi's prophecy also has a covenant fulfillment because we'll also link ourselves to our fathers through covenant. Here's more commentary on the way that the Bible and the Book of Mormon work together in the last days. and. Uh, This is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, and it will pull from the same quote by Brigham Young that Ogden and Skinner pulled from. It says, The Bible testifies of the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon testifies of the Bible. Mormon declared this, the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that ye may believe that, the Bible, and if ye believe that, the Bible, ye will believe this, the Book of Mormon, also. President Brigham Young declared it impossible for someone who claimed to truly believe in the Bible to not believe in the Book of Mormon if they have seriously studied the Book of Mormon and learned its doctrines. No man can say that this book, laying his hand on the Bible, is true, is the word of the Lord, is the way, is the guideboard in the path, a charter by which we may learn the will of God, and at the same time say that the Book of Mormon is untrue. If he has had the privilege of reading it, or of hearing it read, and learning its doctrines, There is not that person on the face of the earth who has had the privilege of learning the gospel of Jesus Christ from these two books who can say that one is true and the other is false. One purpose of the Book of Mormon is to prove to the world that the Holy Bible is true. There's another expression in Doctrine and Covenants section 20 that supports that. By reading the Book of Mormon, a person's testimony of the Bible increases. President Ezra Taft Benson spoke of his love for the Bible and the Book of Mormon and how they both testify that Jesus is the Christ. He said, I love the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. It is a source of great truth. That sacred and holy book has been of inestimable worth to the children of men. In fact, it was a passage from the Bible that inspired the prophet Joseph Smith to go to a grove of trees near his home and kneel in prayer. What followed was the glorious vision that commenced the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth. That vision also began the process of bringing forth new scripture, the Book of Mormon, To stand shoulder to shoulder with the Bible in bearing witness to a wicked world that Jesus is the Christ, and that God lives and loves his children, and is still intimately involved in their salvation and exaltation. Now we come to verse 10, which is the final know ye statement, and it mirrors the very first know ye statement in verse 2, when in that verse Mormon said, Know ye that ye are of the house of Israel. So verse 10 says and ye will also know that ye are a remnant of the seed of Jacob. Therefore ye are numbered among the people of the first covenant. So this is another way of expressing that you are of the house of Israel. And if it so be that ye believe in Christ and are baptized, first with water, then with fire, and with the Holy Ghost, following the example of our Savior. Now remember Nephi pointed that out in 2 Nephi 31, that the Savior set an example for us by being baptized in this way according to that which he hath commanded us, it shall be well with you in the day of judgment. Amen. So that's the second time in which he said, it will and it can and will be well with you in the day of judgment if you will lay hold upon the gospel of Christ. So he's also restating that and uh, providing that hope to future readers in a moment where he should at least so understandably be devoid of hope himself in the midst of such terrible loss, but instead Mormon is turning outward and giving hope to future readers because of the hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, this language, this old language of the first covenant and the remnant of the seed of Jacob, uh, the house of Israel, this is all being tied to the language of the gospel, which sounds more contemporary uh, for us today when we, we, we understand well the concept of of being baptized with water, and then with fire and the Holy Ghost, and following the example of our Savior. So these are beautiful and poetic restatements of the concept of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is how Mormon will spend his very final words that he writes to us in the Book of Mormon. Hoyt Brewster summarizes what Mormon has done in this chapter by saying, as the prophet Mormon's life draws to a close, he writes to the remnant of this people who are spared, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, and invites them to believe in Christ and accept his gospel. This invitation is remarkable in that these people to whom he is speaking are the descendants of the very Lamanites who had destroyed Mormon's people. Mormon's son Moroni, on the title page of the Book of Mormon, also calls the Lamanites a remnant of the house of Israel, and the Lord himself identifies the Lamanites, the seed of father Lehi, As the remnant of whom he spoke in Nephi's writings. So, again, this is how Mormon chooses to end his record to us. He turned and spoke to future readers at the end of chapter 3. He did the same at the end of chapter 5, and now he has spent all of chapter 7 in turning to future readers and speaking to them. He's not done speaking to his readers in this way, uh, but it will be done through Moroni. And Moroni will do it most pointedly when in the next chapter he will say that Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me and I know your doings. So he will continue with this tone in speaking to future readers. We'll also have the privilege of hearing from Mormon again. Thankfully, his words are recorded in Moroni chapters 7, 8, and 9. And Moroni will provide those for us there. So we have all of that still to look forward to as we come to the end of Mormon's writings in his self-titled book, The Book of Mormon. So, for now, this brings us to the end of Mormon, Chapter 7. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens, and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas R. Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of Scripture as well as general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I of course am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch. And thank you for listening.